0: You're listening to Sex and Love with me, your host, Dr. Emily Jamia. This series focuses on all topics related to sex and love, both here in the U.S. and around the world. My goal is to not only showcase sexually empowered people, but also give a voice to the challenges many face due to the taboo nature of sexuality in many cultures. Do you struggle to maintain desire in your relationship? Does one of you want sex more often than the other? Watch my interview with Dr. Barry McCarthy, my colleague, mentor, and author of 12 books and dozens of articles as we tackle all of these questions.
1: Thank you everyone for tuning in. This is the first of my professional interview series, and I feel like I'm starting off really at the top here because I'm joined by Dr. Barry McCarthy, who's Books, I think I read like over a decade ago, back when I was an emerging sex therapist and going through college and grad school. And, um, Dr. McCarthy, I've followed your work for a long time, and then you've kind of been a mentor for me in recent years with some of my research. So, I feel like you've kind of been a part of my life for over a decade now. So, I'm really pleased to have you. Um, I'm going to turn it over to you and let you introduce yourself to our audience.
2: So, I'm my Professional background is I have a PhD in clinical psychology, certified sex therapist and certified couple therapist. I practiced in Washington, D.C. for about 42 years. Now what I do is um, is much easier, which is I give workshops for professionals and I write books for the lay public. And so that's what I do now in my life. And I especially am interested in topics about what keeps sexuality healthy. And that the paradox, actually, is that when sex plays a positive role in a person's life and relationship, it's a small role. It's a 15 to 20% role. and will allow you to feel desire and desirability, and it energizes your body. And the paradox, actually, is when it's dysfunctional, it's conflictual, but especially when it's avoided, plays an enormously powerful negative role. It really drains you, and it drains the relationship. And it's totally unnecessary because ultimately sex is a team sport and you need to be intimate and erotic allies in that sport.
1: That's so interesting. So let me just recap that. So on the positive side, when sex is going well, you're saying it only makes up for kind of a small percentage right. of relationship happiness and success. But when it's going poorly, it can make for a huge percentage of marital dissatisfaction.
2: And when couples feeling dissatisfied or when that it breaks up, it's often, especially early in a, in a relationship, it is a sex problem. Yeah. But I think most couples begin in what's called the limerence phase of a relationship.
1: Mm-hmm
2: which is this romantic love, passionate sex, idealized. I love the limerence thing.
1: Everything's easy, right? Everything's wonderful. That's why they call it falling in love. It's a very right. passive process.
2: But it's very fragile. It lasts between six months and two years. The yeah. challenge is to find a couple sexual style that reinforces this new mantra, desire, pleasure, eroticism, and satisfaction. That's and you've got to figure out who you are as a sexual couple.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And usually who you are as a sexual couple is different than who you are as a relational couple. The best friend relational style is the one that works for most couples. The sense that you your partner has your back, they know who you really are, and they still love you. But that doesn't work as well sexually. Mm. The key issue sexually is how you balance intimacy and eroticism. There's so many couples who say, we love each other, but we no longer feel desired or desirable with each other. You've de-eroticized yourself, and you've de-eroticized your relationship.
1: So what would you advise for that kind of couple? Because I know that's a couple I have often in my practice. They'll say, we have this amazing relationship. We co-parent really well. We have our health. We have stable jobs. Like, everything is going well, but... We're just not in the mood to have sex. Like, What, what kind of advice do you give to those couples?
2: Well, the biggest thing is for them to understand that that's a very common problem. Desire is the most common sexual problem among American couples. And whether it's low desire or desire discrepancies, it affects one out of two relationships.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So it's important to not feel that you're alone in this. Right.
1: I think everyone but thinks the neighbors
2: are having better sex. and that's probably-
1: Everybody's having
2: better sex than you, right? Yeah. It's a myth. <laughs> um, so I think that the, the thing that people have to be able to do, the worst time to talk sex is when you're nude in bed after a negative experience. People say and do things that really hurt.
3: Totally. The best agree.
2: place to talk sex is in a therapist's office or the day before having being sexual. Mm-hmm. And talk about it in terms of both being intimate and erotic friends. Because that's what the real challenge is. There's so many couples who say, I love my spouse, but I'm no longer in love with her. They de-eroticize them and the relationship in themselves. And intimacy and eroticism are crucial factors, but they're very different. Mm-hmm. Intimacy is all about feeling safe, secure, predictable, warm, and close. Wonderful feelings but it's not good sexually. The sex and eroticism is all about taking risks. It's about high intensity emotions, high intensity sensations. Um, when I see R rated, movies, I love movies
3: mm-hmm. and
2: I love R rated movies, but it's never about marital couples. It's okay. never about marital sex. It's premarital sex or extramarital sex. The challenge is for you to see yourself and your partner As in as erotic friends, not just intimate friends. And finding a couple sexual style that allows you to share desire, pleasure, eroticism, and satisfaction.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Again, desire is the most important, satisfaction is the second most important. And about positive realistic expectations, you know, the best sex, and I want to be real clear about this, is mutual synchronous sex. Both of you feel high levels satisfaction. But that's the exception, not the rule. Right, Most sex is good, but it's asynchronous. It's better for one partner than the other. And for couples under 40, it tends to be better for the man than the woman. But interestingly, in couples over 65, it tends to be better for the woman than the man. It's a really interesting gender challenge.
1: I have some ideas about why they might, that might be, but what's your take on it?
2: Well, my take on it is pretty straightforward. My take on it is the way that most men learn to be sexual is autonomously. In other words, he can feel desire. He can be aroused. He can be orgasmic. He doesn't need anything from his partner. He wants his partner to be involved in enjoy it. but he doesn't need anything from her. Most women learn sex as intimate and interactive. And they learn desire as responsive, responsive to both emotional feelings, but especially responsive to touch. You often begin a sexual experience at, at a 10 point scale of pleasure, you begin at zero, at neutral. And as you touch and are touched and aware of your feelings and your partner's feelings, that's when you experience desire.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So the, the in the long run, the responsive, sexual desire model works much better it's a hard thing to talk to 20 and 30 year old men about because they get spontaneous erections and they tie that to desire right but in their 50s 60s and especially 70s and 80s you don't get spontaneous erections right It comes from the interaction between the two so men,
1: get, men get aroused and feel like okay i'm in the mood i want to have sex whereas women have more of the responsive desire That comes after feeling the emotional connection and and physical sensations of arousal.
2: But but if you look at couples in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, that's not true.
3: Mm.
2: For those couples, they both need responsive desire.
3: Mm.
2: Responsive desire makes a lot of sense. And the old view of males and females was that male sexuality was better. It got spontaneous erections. it had predictable intercourse and orgasm. That's the right model. But people believe more and more, and, I, and as I've gotten older, I've become believe more and more, and that is female-male sexual equity, that that is so much better than the double standard. Oh, yeah. What I say to young couples is if you figure out how to be sexual now, it's going to be a better investment for you than putting $100,000 into retirement.
1: It's going to really pay off. It's cheaper than a divorce, too.
2: <laughs> much cheaper than a divorce. Yeah.
1: So what kind of advice do you give to young couples on cultivating that early in the relationship?
2: Well, the thing that I say to them is, and the same thing I say to couples in their 70s, but especially for couples in their 20s and 30s, is the Limerence phrase was wonderful. It's time to let it go. You've got to find a way of turning towards your partner as your intimate neurotic ally, your intimate neurotic friend. And find a sexual style that really does work for you. And that means how you balance intimacy and eroticism. The best friend's style works relationally and parentally. It doesn't work sexually.
1: So does that mean, Dr. McCarthy, let me interrupt you. So does that mean that couples shouldn't necessarily be best friends or too emotionally close? Is that what you're saying? Because that can kill the eroticism or can they still have that but then learn to also have the eroticism and if so, how?
2: Um, Keeping their their best friend relational style for most couples is a wonderful idea. Okay. It's true whether they're married or partnered, whether they're straight or gay. Okay. But when it comes to their sexual style, it's different. They need to integrate Playfulness and eroticism. But the biggest thing is they need to, to not, the woman not feel inferior to the man. Mm. That she has, she has to find her own sexual voice. And that sexual voice really allows her to be open and to look at him and his erection as her friend, not as a pressure to be sexual. The name of the game, basically, is to focus on desire experiences. What builds comfort, what builds attraction, what builds trust. And each of you have an opportunity, in my way of working with folks and and teaching folks, Mm -hmm. is each of you has a right to your own sexual voice and your own sexual scenario. And I've worked with over 4,000 couples. I've never worked with a couple that has the exact same preferences for sexual scenarios.
3: Mm.
2: So have your unique voice, but turn towards your partner as your ally and not feel that the woman is in a one down position.
1: Right how how do you advise women to discover their sexual voice because that's something i work with women a lot they'll say like okay i'm open to you know reconnecting with my sexuality but they feel sort of inhibited and shy and don't really know where to start how do you guide them
2: well you know i'm a big believer in psychoeducation yeah so if i and i don't mean to sell books but you know for young women women under 30 the best sex book for young women is a book called Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski. Yeah,
1: it's kind of the women's sexuality Bible, if you, if you
2: will. Right. My college students love Emily Nagoski in yep. Come As You Are. I think for adult women, women over 30, our book, Finding Your Sexual Voice, really does empower the woman. Mm. And let me say something that sounds paradoxical, but I think is really important. And that is unless she has the power to say no to sex, she doesn't have the freedom to say yes to sex.
1: Very and she clear.
2: trusts that he will honor her veto.
1: Yes. Yes, definitely. How do you, what do, what do you say? So I, I often have couples come in where there's a higher desire and a lower desire partner, of course. And we sort of, they, they develop kind of a secondary issue in therapy where, the higher desire partner is like constantly expressing their frustration and they'll say, well, I feel like I have I'm entitled to my feelings too. How, what would you advise them? How can they express their frustration or dissatisfaction without making the lower desire partner feel even worse?
2: Well, I think one of the most important concepts is this idea that sex is a team sport about sharing pleasure
3: mm-hmm.
2: and you don't turn on your, on your teammate. You don't, Label your teammate, you know, complain about your teammate. And you break the power struggle. The traditional male-female power struggle is intercourse or nothing. And if it's intercourse or nothing, nothing's going to win.
1: I love that quote of yours. (laughs) It's so true.
2: One of the most valuable things that they can do is say sex is more than intercourse. We love intercourse. You know, I want to say this very clearly. I'm totally in favor of arousal intercourse and orgasm no ifs ands and buts but that's not the essence of couple sex yeah the essence of couple sex is pleasure and it's understanding you can have sensuality you can have playfulness you can have eroticism without intercourse all of those are ways of being sexual
1: mm mm-hmm. yeah so I was going to say, that's something I encourage my clients all the time because so many people think of sex happening very linearly that, you know, first you have desire, then arousal, then maybe an orgasm and the whole thing is over. And I sort of like think of the infinity symbol and I encourage them to touch each other, even when they don't want to have sex and to be responsive to their partner's touch or, you know, to take a bath together or shower together. That can be a very erotic, but not sexual experience. And I think- I
2: would argue with you. I think it is a sexual experience. I think the way to do it is to to confront this idea that sex equals intercourse. Yes. That sex is about pleasure and it includes sensual, playful, and erotic scenarios. Mm -hmm. I'd have them talk about it, read about it. But the major thing I'd have them do, whether it's once a month or once every three months, say we're going to schedule a sensual day. On the next month, we're going to schedule a playful day. And the next month, we're going to schedule an erotic date, and we're going to decide whether it's going to be mutual or it's going to be asynchronous. Mm. And I do think that that's part of positive, realistic expectations. Yeah. And and don't use the male model. The male model is very simplistic. Right. Predictable erection, predictable intercourse, predictable orgasm. That's the male model, and that's seen as superior. It isn't superior. Mm-hmm. The female model of intimate interactive sex and valuing eroticism and valuing orgasm, but not making it contingent. You know what's the single most important valuable thing that couples do when they do these exercises? What? Is when the non orgasmic partner, and it's usually the woman, but we're talking about older couples, it can be the man too. When the non orgasmic partner Turns to the orgasmic partner and says, I really love that sex. I really feel really good about you and about me. And the orgasmic partner says, You feel much better. I mean, I had an orgasm, but I don't feel very satisfied.
3: Yeah.
2: Satisfaction, I love orgasm for men and women. Mm-hmm. But satisfaction is not primarily about orgasm. No. It's primarily about feeling good about yourself as a sexual person and energizes a sexual couple.
1: I agree. I think sex does not have to have an org. Uh, does not require an erection. Number one and satisfaction and pleasure does not necessarily include an orgasm all the time for people. I work with couples so much on rewriting their sexual script or at least expanding it because Mm -hmm. so many times couples come in with this very narrow idea of what sex should be. And when something happens that maybe doesn't go according to plan, it's like the entire experience just stops and feeling hurt and people get upset. And so I work with them on learning to be adaptable to the changes that are going to, happen. And I think that's also a key for long term satisfaction with couples, because, you know, I tell them the sex that you have in the honeymoon period of the relationship is going to be different a couple years in, it's going to be different when maybe you're trying to conceive, when you have young children at home, when you're empty nesters, it evolves with your circumstances, your body's limitation, your, you know, desires, and it's so important for couples to learn to negotiate that and and kind of roll with it early on.
2: And negotiate, not in a politically correct way, but an emotional way.
1: Yes. Yes.
2: Because I want to be sure that sexually you have my back. Mm
3: -hmm. You know,
2: let me give you some good news and then some bad news. I love doing that when I write and talk. The good news is that couples who stay sexual in their 60s, 70s, and 80s are more satisfied sexually than couples in their 20s and 30s. That's really important. And it's scientifically true. Yeah. The thing that really shocks people, especially men, is that when couples, especially couples over 50, stop being sexual, it's almost always the man's decision.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. It isn't because he doesn't want to have sex. That's a myth. It's because he's lost his confidence with erections and intercourse. Mm -hmm. And he says, I don't want to start something I can't finish. I've heard that a thousand times. So I'd rather not do anything. It's his decision. It's a really... Unwise decision for him, for her, and for them as a relationship.
1: Then they're making sex contingent on the erection,
2: on performance. Okay. For them, sex is a pants fail performance. Right. You know, you can use Viagra or Cialis, and by the way, for most couples, Cialis works better because it fits into their sexual style easier. But it isn't a standalone medication, right. and probably these pro erection medications, especially Viagra has probably caused more non-sexual marriages than anything else in history since mm. 1998. Wow. Cuz nobody says to the couple or to the man what to expect in terms of good enough sex, not perfect performance, and how to integrate the viagra into their couple sexual style. Mm-hmm.
1: And it's not just, I think, the men who lose confidence because they, their erections are maybe a little bit less reliable. I've worked with so many couples where the female partner's reaction to the loss of erection takes what might have just been a blip on the radar and turns it into like this whole thing. It's, oh, you're not attracted to me or, oh, my body is ugly or you don't desire me anymore. And when I ask male partners sometimes, you know, individually, usually, what was the worst part? when you lost your reaction, nine times out of 10, they say, the look on my partner's face. So I think that so many women buy into this male model and put all the emphasis on the erection as well. And it it creates such a gap for for couples. It's an
2: intercourse or nothing performance model. Mm -hmm. It isn't a team model, and it isn't an intimacy model. And again, what to do about it is very straightforward trying to get people to do it and really be motivated to do it is much more challenging. But it's when, when sex does know the the positive flow in terms of desire is is openness, positive anticipation, really getting into touching and being touched, um, Mm -hmm. pleasure orientation, arousal, erotic flow, intercourse, and orgasm. Mm -hmm. When it doesn't flow though, rather than being self-conscious and apologizing, or panicking is to be able to say to your partner, this isn't going to be an intercourse night.
3: Yeah.
2: Let's make this either a sensual night or a place or an erotic non intercourse night. Right. We can do it synchronously or asynchronously, but yeah. let's have a good time here. Yeah. Or at the worst, let's let's make it a rain check, mm-hmm. but st- stop turning away and feeling terrible.
1: Stay positive. Right. And- Don't forget that you're working together as a team, I think, is key.
2: Right. This notion that says, I trust that sexually my partner has my back. Mm
1: -hmm. What's your advice to couples where one person maybe wants to try something a little bit outside the box and the Mm -hmm. other is just completely shut down to the idea?
2: Well, I think, again, the notion is to talk about this outside the bedroom when you're dressed. Yeah. And to be able to say, I want the person who wants to try something, whether it's the man or the woman, says, this is what I'd like to try in the next month in terms of being sexual. And the person has a choice of saying yes, no, or saying I don't want to do that, but I'll try something else. What you don't have a choice of is to avoid. Avoidance is anti-sexual. Yeah, it's re- The notion is, where can we meet? And again, you can veto, what I say to people is, you can veto up to three scenarios, but not more than three.
3: Mm.
2: What are you open to? Right. The, the traditional thing is men never say no to sex. And that one of the things that we do when I would work with couples is they would not be able to terminate until he had said no at least once to know he can do it.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I think that the challenge for the woman is to find her erotic voice. She often finds her pleasuring voice and her intimacy voice, but not her erotic
1: voice. What's the difference?
2: It has. Think about arousal on a ten-point scale. Zero is neutral. Sensual is like two to three. Playful is like four to five. Erotic is like six to ten.
3: So
2: there's a they're they're compatible but they're different intimacy is about feeling close secure warm eroticism is about taking risk and intense emotions and inter- intense sensations they're both really important and they both they belong to both men and women mm-hmm. and
1: how
3: think, you, oh, go
2: ahead go ahead, ahead.
1: Please. I was going to say where how do you create those intense emotions in eroticism when your day to day life is so predictable and simple. How do couples do that? Is it by taking sexual risks and stepping outside the box a little bit? Is that.
2: Well, I think most of the advice about eroticism, this is one of the things I write about too much and talk about too much professionally. Most of the stuff on the internet about eroticism is, an- is actually anti intimacy and is performance oriented, and you feel uh, negated.
3: All the tips and and
2: tricks. and Right. All the tricks. Most of them are harmful.
3: Yeah.
2: And it kind of compared, it says to you, you're not erotic enough. Right. Look at the porn videos. Look at the R-rated movies. They're having really erotic sex and you're not. I think the theme that helps people is where they have the permission to develop erotic bridges to Mm desire as opposed to intimacy bridges to desire where they really develop their own scenario about what would be inviting and intense for them. Yeah. And don't compare it to an R rated movie or to a porn movie. Right. Compare it to who you are and what you like. And most of the time it still is partner interaction arousal. And the most erotic thing is in a turned on partner.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that's so true because otherwise, you know, hot sex is about these things that you do and less about, who you are. It doesn't encompass the whole person or the erotic connection. And that's where like the hotness is, is in that flow between two people unless about like the things that you're doing or the toys that you bring into the mix. I think that's such a common misconception people have, but the only way they're going to have kinky sex is if they buy a new sex toy or try some Position that they may pull a hamstring attempting to get into. And, and it's so much more than
3: that.
2: You know, one of the absolute worst pieces of erotic advice is to, for most people, again, everybody's different sexually. You have to respect sexual differences. And I love the line, I don't know whose line it is it's actually one size never fits all. Mm-hmm. But for most people, a really bad piece of advice is to act out your erotic fantasies. Usually when you act out your erotic fantasies, you feel self-conscious and it's a And it kind of
1: de-eroticizes them, right?
3: Well,
2: it de-eroticizes the fantasy. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. And again, the message is you're not good enough. And that's a very common message in our culture. You're not erotic enough.
3: Yeah.
2: And you compare the sex that you're feeling now that you've been in a relationship for five years or 45 years, with the sex that you had in the first six months in a relationship. You can't do that. You can't can't get back to the limerence period. Right. The limerence is all about newness and breaking boundaries and idealization. When you've been with a person two years or longer, you no longer idealize it. Right. We all have our vulnerabilities and our warts.
1: And I think that's why so many people also think like a fair sex feels so much better because you're not, you know, Taking out a mortgage together, you're not brushing your teeth together every single night. And it's that newness, it's stepping outside the line, which keeps it very hot for couples. And so they assume, well, this, you know, sex with this person is going to be better than with my primary partner. And it's not just about who they're with, but the circumstances.
2: Right. You, when, when you have an affair, an affair is like the limerence phase multiplied by three <laughs> yeah. in terms of secrecy and breaking boundaries. Um, But that for most people, we could have a whole hour on affairs. Most of the advice about affairs is not very helpful in terms of desire. The challenge for couples who are going to recover from an affair is to find a new couple sexual style that doesn't compare with the affair. You can never compare affair sex and relationship sex. It's apples and oranges. Mm -hmm. The thing that motivates folks is to compare sex after the affair with your spouse than the sex before the affair. And that's a challenge in sexual recovery is to find a new couple sexual style. Mm -hmm.
1: And I think that's really, you know, these concepts of intimacy versus intensity get so muddled for people. I think that in the honeymoon stage of a relationship, people confuse that initial intensity for a high degree of intimacy, but it's really just intensity. And when, that starts to come down a little bit. They think they're not into the person anymore. And so they'll maybe break off their relationship. And then we see the serial monogamist, right? Who starts Mm -hmm. a new relationship all the time because they want that intensity. But really it's an intimacy issue after a certain point.
2: Well, I think what happens is that unless the eroticism is integrated into, into this couple style of intimacy and pleasure, That's my mantra. It's intimacy, pleasuring, eroticism. That's the integration. Unless the eroticism is integrated, it's going to be dramatic, but it's going to be incredibly unstable.
1: Right. And I always remind people too, though, that, Once you cross that threshold and develop a deeper level of intimacy in the relationship, when you mix that into sexuality, that that closeness that you feel, that can be a very intense experience for people just in a different way.
2: It's in a different way. It's in a more integrated eroticism. Exactly. But the, the danger is, the danger, let me be specific about this. The best sex is mutual synchronous sex. Mm -hmm. Both of you experience desire, you experience pleasure, eroticism, and satisfaction. By far the best sex. But most sex is asynchronous. It's positive for both people, but it's better for one person than the other. And that's normal, too. Mm -hmm. You want to have a view of sexuality that really fits who you are as a person, your relationship, your family, your values. It's got to integrate in who you are.
3: Yes.
1: And I think also I, I encourage couples to use sex within their relationship as an opportunity to discover new sides of themselves. I think that we have the capacity to, to kind of be so many different people if we choose to with our partner. And I think sex can be a wonderful way to explore that for couples who are willing to take that risk. But that, that usually requires a high degree of vulnerability and trust. Would you agree?
2: In an ongoing relationship, absolutely.
1: Yeah.
2: There's a very big difference between relational sex and non-relational sex. Mm-hmm. And what you see, again, in, in videos and, and uh, is you see basically hot couples are non-relational couples. Right. The challenge for relational couples is the balancing and the integration. Yeah. And again, the, the, if you want a specific technique, one of the most valuable techniques is this idea of bridges to sexual desire. Mm -hmm. What makes sex inviting for you? In terms of initiation, in terms of touching, in terms of how the scenario plays out, and in terms of uh, arousal and orgasm. And again, people are very different about bridges to desire. Mm -hmm. But having his bridge to desire, her bridges and our bridges, really does help couples.
1: Definitely, definitely. Well, we will wrap this up in a moment. But before we do, I want you to talk a little bit about this new book that you have coming out in January.
2: Right. So let me give you our... I love writing. Yeah. I I love writing more than anything else now except teaching professions. And so my books are now written for the lay public. The book that is coming out in January is called Contemporary Male Sexuality. I really think So much of the sex books are written for couples and are written for women, Mm
3: -hmm. especially
2: for women, which are wonderful. But I think it's important to talk to what is healthy male sexuality. There's a chapter in it about uh, confronting toxic male sexuality, because that's important too. But it's basically a book about a new model of male sexuality Mm -hmm. that emphasizes sexual equity with women and that emphasizes consent and pleasure, and that emphasizes good enough sex, not perfect sexual performance. It's an anti-perfect performance
1: book. Oh, we've been waiting for that. And ever since you know Come As You Are came out, I've been kind of waiting. All right, who's gonna write like the male version of this book for male sexuality? Because so much has shifted. I mean, of course, over the decades, but especially in the last five, ten years, and we need an updated book.
2: Right. And you know, the book about desire problems that I think is our best book is the third edition. It's called Rekindling Desire. Mm-hmm. It's for, you know, one out of five American couples are sexual less than 10 times a year. Mm. It's a very common problem. Yeah. Like and different. our best book for regular couples who don't have sexual dysfunction, but sort of regular couples who are trying to figure out how to integrate sex in their lives. It's called Enhancing Couple mm mm-hmm so I I writing is
3: on
1: fun on my bookshelf here so right. right staples right, yeah. yeah yeah well we are so excited to get that to, to see that book come out so thank you so much for your contributions ongoing contributions to the field
2: and thank you for the interview we yeah. really enjoyed it great
1: all right well we're going to sign off if anyone has any follow-up questions um, you can send me a DM and we'll keep the conversation going thank you so much Dr. McCarthy thank you
0: since the recording of this podcast dr mccarthy recently released a new book dr mccarthy do you want to tell us a little bit about your latest project
2: we have just completed our last book which is couple sexuality after 60. this is a book we're very very proud of and very excited about it should be published september 1st and it presents a new model of sexuality and aging that emphasizes That sexuality is more than intercourse, that emphasizes variable, flexible, um, pleasure-oriented sexuality. um, That talks about the good enough sex model, and especially emphasizes female-male sexual equity. The good news is you can be sexual in your 60s, 70s, and 80s. The bad news is that people stop being sexual usually at the man's choice because he's lost comfort and confidence with erections and intercourse. You can have healthy, satisfying sexuality in your 60s, 70s and 80s.
0: Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of Sex and Love with me, Dr. Emily Jamia. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like, subscribe, and share with a friend or partner. I release an episode every other Monday. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Dr. Emily Jamia. If you and your partner are struggling with emotional and sexual intimacy, check out my online workshop available at www.EmilyJamia.com. See you guys next time on Sex and Love.